mentioned to Larry McCarg that when I was growing up in Northern California, whenever I asked my father the name of any plant, whether from the smallest weed to the largest tree, his response was, that's a bougainvillea. Until <laughs> I moved to Southern California, I had no idea what a bougainvillea actually was, but I, I did know that I did not come of the kind of stock that would produce a botanist. So, uh, well, it's, it's good to be back with you this morning, and um, um, I admire your uh, perseverance. Um, uh, one of the things it takes to uh, grow in grace is what the Germans call Zitzfleisch, um, yeah. flesh to sit on. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, so uh, we're, at least, we're at least exercising that, so uh, it's, it's good to be here with you. Now, our, our subject for this morning is uh, the subject of the pattern of worship. Uh, having, having talked about uh, how God's Word regulates our worship, that God's Word gives us all that we need for worship, uh, we are still left with a question, uh, is there a pattern in Scripture uh, for our worship? And before I get going, let me, let me say, I, I will uh, try as we go along, in some of these lectures at least, to leave a little time for question and answers at the end, because... Often it is nice to be able to ask questions right when they have come to mind rather than having to say them to the end, but I, I can't guarantee that I'll be good about that, but I'll try to leave a little time, uh, at least in some of the lectures, uh, towards the end. Um, now, for us as Reformed people, uh, we have often uh, talked about how the pattern of our worship, the order of our worship, the actual uh, order in which we do things in our, in our service is derived from, to one extent or another from the synagogue. And um, if you're aware of, of that historic uh, reformed uh, notion, uh, you may wonder how that relates to our stress yesterday, particularly on our worship being in the heavenly temple, that the ideal of the temple continues. And I think it was Reverend Keller pointed out that uh, uh, an addition to what I said yesterday needs to be that, that the congregation itself is the temple, and uh, uh, we don't have holy places in this world because we have holy people. We are the saints of God. We are the holy ones of God. And, and the church is our coming together. The church in its deepest sense is never a place. Um, uh, there's some group that uh, says that on their signboard, isn't it? The, the church of Christ meets here. And actually that's kind of nice. Um, uh, that's true. That, that building isn't the church of Christ. Uh, the church of Christ is the people who meet in that building. And, um, but, but how then, especially if we see the synagogue as a somewhat informal, ad hoc uh, uh, arrangement that arose in the history of God's people, how do we connect the notions of synagogue with temple? How sh should we look to the synagogue as something of an inspiration for us in um, the, uh, the patterning of our worship? And I think the New Testament itself, um, in, in an interesting way, connects those ideas and really says to us, we are the temple as a synagogue. And so it is in the new covenant, not in the old, that synagogue and temple are in a sense fused together. And the synagogue institution is now transformed into the way in which the covenant people of God uh, gather and live. There's a little fly buzzing around my head. It reminds me of a Christian reform minister in our congregation in Escondido years and years ago. 
in those days, there was no air conditioning. They had to leave the windows open, and so occasionally on a warm summer evening, a fly would come in, and one night he was preaching away with great energy and enthusiasm, and he took a deep breath and swallowed the fly. <laughs> the congregation was somewhat shocked, but he went right on, being a good Calvinist, uh, not to be deterred. Um, and he was a man famous for having a scripture verse for every occasion. <laughs> and so one lady asked him at the door, do you have a scripture verse for swallowing a fly in the middle of a sermon. And without missing a beat, he said, I was a stranger and you took me in. <laughs> it's a true story. Reverend Rorda. Anyway. Now, where in the world was I? Um, we... We see in the New Testament itself the, the fusion, it seems to me, of the notions of, uh, of temple and of synagogue. We see that uh, perhaps as clearly as anywhere in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, where, of course, we have the, uh, the great notion of the heavenly temple and our access to it through the work of Christ. Uh, and um, then down in uh, verse 25 of Hebrews chapter 10, we read, Let us not give up meeting together. And the word there in Greek is epesunagoge, uh, of synagoguing together. Let us give, not give up our synagoguing together. And even more uh, pointedly, perhaps, in James 2, chapter 2, uh, James wrote, um, I'm reading from the NIV, Suppose a man comes into your meeting, and the word again there is synagogue. Suppose a man comes into your synagogue. The, the Christian church had a sense, now of course, uh, the, the word synagogue is a Greek word for meeting, but it, it has those overtones, you see, and, and James is certainly speaking uh, in Jewish terms at the beginning of his letter. It has that sense that we are the Christian synagogue and that that Christian meeting is our access to the heavenly temple. And therefore, I think it was a very sound reformed instinct uh, that our fathers looked to some extent to the, temp uh, to the synagogue and its order of worship uh, for at least the opening part of our worship. Uh, the worship that's centered around the Word. And as the synagogue service, in a rather simple way, focused on the Word, so the origins of our, um, not just Reformed worship, but worship of the ancient church was derived uh, from the synagogue. And one of the uh, interesting things that I learned from studying ancient church history is that for a long time there were a significant number of Christians who worshipped both in the synagogue on Saturday and in the church on Sunday. And it's interesting that uh, leaders in the Christian church used to complain about this and say you ought not to go to synagogue if you're a Christian. And leaders in the Jewish community complained about this and said if you're Jews you ought not to go to church. Uh, but uh, a, a, a number of Jewish Christians didn't pay attention to their leaders on either side. Pastors have sometimes experienced that, people not uh, following everything they say. Um, and uh, they continued to go to both synagogue and to, uh, to church and I think there was a, a commonality of experience as they went from one to the other because so much of the service in both places was a reading of Scripture, a praying and an explication uh, of Scripture. And so the, um, the synagogue had a profound effect on the life of the church. Now some who uh, uh, reject uh, the regulative principle and, uh, and believe that we are very free to pattern our worship and to... Uh, 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 introduce into worship most anything uh, that we want, uh, often say, well, there is no uh, book of Leviticus in the New Covenant. 
I don't know if you've ever heard that. Uh, I've heard that so often, um, I, I tend to have a violent reaction. Um, they, say, they say it in a way as if uh, they have articulated the most brilliant thought in the world, which obviously could never have occurred to anybody else. Uh, John Calvin, John Knox, all the Reformed Fathers, it must never have struck them that there is no book of Leviticus in the New Covenant, and we've now made this wonderful surprise discovery uh, that, that that is true. Now, it is true, of course, there is no book of Leviticus in the, uh, in the New Covenant. There is no book that tells us in detail uh, what the temple worship of God's people would be like. And one can draw two conclusions from that. The conclusion that some draw is, therefore, we're free to do what we like. The other conclusion that we might draw is that, in fact, the worship of the New Covenant is so simple that we don't need a book of Leviticus, but we can have much briefer and simpler instructions. And my um, canned response to their canned criticism is that we have a book of Leviticus in one verse, Acts 2.42. Now, uh, I'm not suggesting that Acts uh, 2.42 is the only verse we need to, um, uh, to establish all we need to know about how we're to worship. Uh, but when you read Acts 2.42, it's really quite remarkable uh, how relatively comprehensive it is in providing a brief description of Christian worship because Christian worship is so simple. It can be briefly described. And I think that's what we find in Acts 2.42. Again, it, not that it tells us everything, I uh, had a friend who used to say, uh, one of the American problems is that they want to reduce all theology to a bumper sticker. Uh, I won't say to a t-shirt. Um, uh, uh, but that is a tendency, you know, if we, can't, if we can't say it in a sentence, then there must be something wrong with our theology. Some, some truths cannot be expressed in a sentence. Uh, it is not true that all plants are bougainvillea. That's a sentence. It's simple, it's straightforward, but it's really not very helpful. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Acts 2.42 comes close uh, to summarizing for us in one sentence what Christian worship is, is really all about. This, of course, uh, is a verse that comes right after uh, the, the, uh, the great manifestation of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, right after many uh, were added to the church, 3,000 baptized, um, on that day, and uh, having talked about the, the birth of the church in one sense, at least with the coming of the Spirit, uh, having uh, recorded the great Pentecost uh, sermon of Acts 2, which you notice uh, is a sermon about Jesus, not about the Spirit. Um, uh, the, the function of the Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus. And uh, anyone who doesn't understand that work of the Spirit doesn't understand the most important work of the Spirit. Uh, after that great sermon, there are people who, uh, who repent, who, are, who by the Spirit of God are cut in their hearts, and Peter leads them to repentance and to baptism. And after this great number were baptized and added to the church, then we read in um, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves. Uh, now we mustn't rush, rush over that verb. They were devoted, they were committed, they, they uh, um, exercised themselves now as the community of uh, believers. Now, they, they did a number of things as we read on in this chapter. They were so committed to one another, they actually sold many of their belongings and, and held their wealth in common. Uh, their, their commitment to Christ radiated out into uh, uh, bearing testimony uh, to others. Verse 47, we read that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. 
And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So uh, their, their devotion to one another radiated out with consequences for the way they lived their lives and for the way in which they impacted their community. But the concentration of their devotion was in their coming together, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And in a real sense, I think we can say that that almost everything we do in worship, everything authorized by the Word of God, is comprehended under those four um, uh, brief statements about how the very earliest church, immediately after Pentecost, gathered together with amongst themselves for uh, worship and devotion to God. And uh, as, we, as we go through those, uh, we can see um, how, how simple this, uh, this devotion of theirs really was. They prayed. Uh, they came together to pray. And uh, I think one of the aspects of worship more, most under assault in our time is prayer. Um, I, I think that's for a variety of reasons. I think for those who um, are very committed to worship as evangelism, they know that the unevangelized find the time of prayer in Christian worship particularly difficult. Why are we all closing our eyes and talking to the wall? And, and therefore, those who want to turn worship into evangelism often greatly reduce the amount of time spent in prayer so it won't offend the unevangelized. It won't be boring to the unevangelized. But one of the most striking features of the Christian community in the book of Acts is that it was a community of prayer. It was a community that devoted itself to prayer. Now, there's another reason that I think prayer is subtly undermined in our time, and that is that um, the idea gets around that corporate prayer is somehow formal and, and therefore not very heartfelt, not very particular, um, and therefore the really important act of praying on the part of the people of God is private prayers or small group prayers, that's where the action is. I can remember attending uh, my in-law's church and uh, the pastor would say every Sunday morning, now you be there Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. That's the hour of power. Well, I'm, I'm not opposed to a Wednesday night prayer meeting, but I, I thought, uh, why did we bother to come this morning on Sunday? Uh, what's going on here? Uh, is this the hour of no power? Uh, uh, but, but you see, the, the idea, and I think it's a, um, a result of uh, revivalism, uh, it's again a reaction to formalism. Somehow the rather formal prayers of the Christian community on the Lord's Day are not really heartfelt. And therefore we need to gather in smaller groups or just privately uh, in, our, in our prayer closets to pray because those will be the efficacious prayers. Those are the prayers of warmed hearts. Those are the prayers that are really devoted. Now I want to try to be clear. I'm not for a moment... Uh, saying that we, we shouldn't have private prayer. We must. I'm not for a moment saying it isn't uh, very valuable to have informal prayer. Uh, we should. But I, I do want to say that uh, what the old folks would have called the prayers of the sanctuary, although we have reservations about that word, uh, the prayers of the people, the covenant people gathered together are crucial prayers, are the central prayers of the Christian community. 
When you read through the book of Acts, uh, what strikes one over and over again is the description is not of private prayer or individual prayer. The description in the book of Acts is the community coming together to pray. Uh, I've said uh, for, for years now, someone should write a book. I never write books, but I have great titles. Uh, any of you is free to use this title. Um, someone should write a book called The Secret of Large Groups. <laughs> you know, we've had so many books for so long on the secret of small groups. And, and small groups are great. But we mustn't allow our um, legitimate desire to see small groups organized to undermine the central function of the gathered community and its prayers. Uh, we had uh, Reverend Terry Johnson from the Independent Presbyterian Church of Savannah, Georgia, uh, lecture at the seminary some years ago, and he went through the book of Acts uh, reminding us of how central communal prayer was in the book of Acts and that every great advance of the church took place in the context of the prayers of the church. Now, he was a good Calvinist. He was not making a one-to-one -one correlation about the amount of time spent in prayer and the success of the church. But he says God calls us to prayer, and the great example of prayer that he gives us is the communal prayer of his people, and we mustn't undervalue that. Um, I think uh, the, uh, some of the older folks that I've known in the Christian Reformed Church understood something about that. They always wanted the minister to pray in church for particular problems. And it was great if other people were praying, but it needed to be prayed for in church. And I think that instinct was right. Uh, when, when the people of God gather as the people of God, as the covenant people under the covenant office bears, there the Lord uh, especially blesses and hears prayer. And uh, we need to remember that. And the, the ancient church models that for us. Now, we are a people of, a t of short attention span. Uh, when I was... Uh, uh, a, a kid um, back in a previous millennium, um, uh, it was not uncommon for the minister to pray 20 minutes. Now, most of us uh, then couldn't pay attention. Uh, the mind would wander. It was a great struggle. So uh, we may well want to break down prayers in the service uh, into shorter segments uh, so that uh, people can participate. But we mustn't short the amount of time we give to prayer in the public worship of God. It's a crucial part of the ministry and life of the church. If worship is meeting with God, then prayer is certainly one of the most crucial, most intimate, most important elements of our meeting with God. It's our opportunity to talk to our Heavenly Father, to open our hearts to Him, uh, to praise Him, and to present our petitions to Him. So prayer is obviously crucial. Now, the, another element that's listed here is the breaking of bread. Um, there's been some controversy, as you no doubt know, about exactly what that phrase means, uh, and the range of opinion is basically whether it means the Lord's Supper or the potluck supper. And um, uh, breaking of bread certainly can mean simply eating together. Uh, but I think most often in the book of Acts, and I would argue here, that it probably has the meaning of um, the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's gathering particularly uh, to focus on the supper of the Lord, the ministry of the Lord through his sacrament, and we'll be talking um, tomorrow, I think, uh, more about that. So I won't uh, spend too much time here. But I, I just would call your attention to the fact that here in this brief description, the Lord's Supper is not seen as an add-on or a very occasional element. It seems to be part and parcel of the regular central 
uh, understanding of worship uh, that goes on uh, amongst the people of God. Uh, then we see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Um, that's very important. Uh, they, they focused their attention on what they had been taught by the foundational teachers of the New Covenant. And um, um, for us, that means, of course, focusing on the Scripture. Uh, that's where we receive the apostolic teaching. And um, again... Uh, we see a, a, a diminution of that setting in on our time. We see it uh, in uh, uh, the reading of Scripture. It used to be very common practice in, uh, probably going back a century or more now, uh, that in many <coughs> Reformed services, uh, two chapters of Scripture would be read, a chapter from the Old T Testament, a chapter from the New. Um, again, I don't say there's any... Uh, a hard and fast rule about uh, how much scripture ought to be read in any given service. We have, we have freedom on that matter. But um, when, I, when I go to churches and one verse of scripture is read, or maybe printed in the bulletin and not even read, uh, it strikes me that that is not an adequate amount of time given to the public reading of scripture. You remember Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, uh, saw as one of Timothy's important ministries the public reading of Scripture. Uh, you remember that uh, the book of the Revelation uh, came with the blessing. Blessed are those who read this aloud, uh, presumably in the assembly of the church. And um, uh, the, the reading of Scripture itself uh, needs to be seen by the people of God as a blessing. It doesn't have to every element read be expositive. Uh, but if people are listening to the public reading of Scripture, that becomes a blessing. Uh, the Word of God is a blessing, and we need to give uh, time and attention to the public reading of, of Scripture. One of the goals of the, um, of the synagogue was, in the course of a year, to read through the whole Torah, the, the first five books of the Old Testament. And um, I don't know that we need to set necessarily as a goal to read through the whole Scripture in public worship, but, but some kind of goal of of comprehensive Bible reading, I think, would be a good thing in the public worship of God. And then, of course, under this uh, giving attention to, attention to the apostles' teaching, I think, is the sermon. Uh, the sermon is the exposition of the apostles' teaching. Um, that has a lot of implications. It, it means, I think, that uh, our uh, preaching has to be Christ-centered. Uh, this is a... a, a um, an implication, I think, of, of the apostles' teaching. It's, it, it's really not good enough to have sermons that could be preached in a synagogue, preached in the church. That's not apostolic. There has to be a Christ-centered dimension uh, to our preaching, even if we're preaching from an Old Testament text, since all the Scripture bears witness to Christ. Uh, Christ has to be explicit, then, um, if we have genuinely apostolic uh, teaching, it seems to me. And, of course... Uh, what that means also is that preaching uh, needs to be uh, a, a ministry of apostolic truth. I think most often that will take the form of an exposition of Scripture, but it, uh, 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 the ministry of apostolic truth can have other forms, but it must be apostolic truth. The sermon is not an occasion, as you all well know, for the minister's opinions. Uh, as brilliant as uh, most ministers I know are, and as fascinating as their opinions are, um, uh, 
preaching is not an occasion for them. Um, I have all sorts of interesting opinions about a, a vast range of things. Uh, I, I like to read uh, novels, and I'd be glad to talk to you uh, about some of the uh, um, uh, interesting novels I've read. We could have an interesting time talking about the relative merits of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. You do know that all the world is divided into two camps. Um, well, actually, the first division is those who've read Russian novels and those who haven't. Um, <laughs> those who've had War and Peace on their list of reading for, for decades and never quite gotten through the first 200 pages. You have to get through the first 200 pages. It really picks up after that. Um, <laughs> but the rest of the world is divided between those who like Tolstoy and those who like Dostoevsky, and it's a very interesting discussion. But it has no place in a sermon. <laughs> Does that sort of get on with it? Um, uh, but, but you see... Um, our opinions, no matter how well-informed, however, however interesting, however useful they are, um, what we come to church for, what we gather as the people of God for, is to hear the apostolic teacher, to hear the truth of God. And, and in that sense, a minister needs to test himself as to whether everything he says in a sermon could be preceded by the phrase, thus says the Lord. Um, there are, you know, we, we could have a nice novel discussion group on a Friday night at church if, if there were people who wanted to do that. That's not an illegitimate thing for Christians to gather to do. But it's not a ministry, it's not the official preaching ministry of the church. That's why ministers historically have tried to be very careful about politics. Ministers may have deeply held political views, um, but there are only certain issues that are so clear and so certain that the minister can come to the pulpit and says, on this political issue, the word of the Lord is. And only when he can say that does he have a right to bring politics into the pulpit. Um, the, the people of God need to be fed by the word of God. And, and one of the great tragedies of the last decade or so, it seems to me, is the number of evangelical churches who have abandoned apostolic teaching for pop psychology. Um, I, uh, I, I drive around a bit and, and there are several noted historic evangelical churches that I drive by from time to time um, in San Diego and up in L.A. and I am appalled at the, the sermon titles on the board out in front. Now the judgment of charity would be that maybe the sermon is better than the title. That's always possible. Uh, but but these, these, uh, these titles are all about you know, how to re reduce stress, and how to raise your children, and how to make your marriage better. And uh, uh, some of these topics are occasionally touched on in the Scripture, but um, not in the kind of proportion that seems now to be uh, dominating um, the churches. We have, a, we have a large evangelical church in our town. It's, a, it's really quite a good church in all sorts of ways. We have a friend, uh, uh, an older lady who's in her early 80s, uh, who, uh, who attends there. She's a very fine Christian, and she started showing up at our church Sunday mornings. And I said, well, nice to see you, Blanche, but what are you doing here? And she said, uh, well, our pastor has just started a 13-week series of sermons on how to make your marriage better. <laughs> and she said, I'm not going. <laughs> now, she's a widow. I said, you don't think you could pick up some dating tips? I drive everybody away. Um, <laughs> but, but you see, um, what, what, what preaching 13 weeks on marriage says is um, we want to attract young couples to our church, which is a good thing. 
But it also says we don't care anything about the old people in this church, it seems to me. I don't think it's probably consciously decided that way. But that's a very bad thing. The apostolic teaching applies to everybody. Uh, that, that first Sunday she came to our church, uh, our pastor was preaching uh, on the Heidelberg Catechism on the, uh, on the section of what is true repentance and how we're to put to death the old man and bring to life the new man. And this lady went out of church and said, uh, I think a lot of marriages would be helped if they had heard that sermon. <laughs> but you see, it's not just marriages that are helped by a sermon like that. Everybody is helped by a sermon like that because everybody needs to repent, even ladies that are 83. And, and you see, that, that's part of the tragedy of our time is that we don't have any confidence in the apostolic teaching, it seems to me. So we have to go around finding all sorts of clever ways to... Um, to solve problems. Now, in a big church like this evangelical church, there probably are lots of marriages in trouble. And, and it might be perfectly, it would be perfectly appropriate to have a marriage seminar on Saturday night uh, so that people who want to focus on marriage and try to learn more Christian principles about marriage and really uh, do it in a determined way could come and work on that. That's, that's great. Uh, but it really seems to me a misuse of the pulpit when we're not trying to speak to the whole Christian community, uh, the apostolic word. And that's what we're called to uh, in this passage. And finally, and interestingly, um, is listed the idea of fellowship. Now, what does the scripture mean, do you think, when it talks about them devoting themselves to fellowship? And uh, as we think about that, I think we, we come, perhaps for the first time, to a very important principle of reading the scripture, a principle that I think uh, um, Dr. Ventil used to uh, articulate uh, frequently and that uh, is long-standing in the Reformed community. Uh, we have to be very careful not to slip into abstractions in understanding biblical words. We have to be concrete in understanding biblical words. We have to understand what they meant to the people to whom they were originally written. Because our temptation is to say, oh, I know what fellowship means. Uh, that's what we do in the social hall. We have a fellowship hall at our church. That means you stand around and talk with your friends. It's a very individual kind of thing. You go from person to person. Preferably, if it's a Christian Reformed church, you have a cup of coffee in your hands. I've told this story before, but I can't resist. We had a, an ecumenical service between the OP church in town and the CRC church about 12 years ago for a Reformation service. And since the OP church was just starting and we had a large church, the OP said, well, we'll have the meeting if you're willing in your church to the Christian Reformed people and we'll bring the refreshments. Well, the Dutchmen were thrilled um, because they already had the church and now they got free refreshments uh, to boot. Um, but we came out of church after a marvelous uh, uh, service together and um, there was only punch. We have not had a United Reformation service since. Um, now, these are cultural matters, but deeply held. And, um, but you see, uh, we, we read into this word fellowship, and we, and we think we know what that means. And so, 
you, you probably have been to churches, maybe you attend one. Um, now we're beginning to get uh, da- on dangerous ground where in the middle of the service, uh, everybody says, now stand up and talk to your neighbor. Shake hands, introduce yourself, spend a little friendly time, and this is fellowship. Well, of course, that is the way we understand the word fellowship to some extent. And uh, so why shouldn't we have coffee in church? You know, maybe a pot up in front on the communion table, and uh, you get a little thirsty, it's a long, dry sermon, you just wander up. And, and would, wouldn't that be what we're called to here? We ought to have fellowship, you see. We understand the word fellowship primarily meaning a personal interaction, one-on-one of people. And if there isn't a kind of one-on-oneness, we don't think we've had fellowship, because that's the way we understand that word. I don't think that's probably the way uh, the original readers of the book of Acts would have understood it. The root word of the word for fellowship, the word is koinonia, we've, we've used that word some uh, in English, the word, root word of the word koinonia is the word common in Greek. It means commonness. And in that sense, it means shared. And I suspect that uh, in the ancient world, when they read that word fellowship, they would have understood that as doing something together, rather than the way we tend to understand it as doing something each individually. And I would suggest one of the best ways we express fellowship in this sense is singing. I, I would think that an ancient Christian would come into our service and say, look at them fellowshipping. They're all singing together. That is, they're all doing something in common. They're sharing the same moment together. They're doing something together. That's really fellowship. And that's why I say we have to make this distinction between a kind of abstract notion of what a word means and the more concrete meaning of that word in context. Uh, When we recite the creed together, I think the ancients would say, that's a wonderful act of fellowship. Look, we're all saying the same words at the same time, meaning the same thing, confessing what's in our heart together. We are really binding ourselves together. We are having all things in common. The truth in common. Praise in common. And so the commonness, the togetherness, the joint action of our worship, I think is what is primarily um, in mind here. Now, does that mean there's no time to be friendly? Sure, there's times to be friendly and one-on-one. But I don't think we can justify that as an act of worship from an appeal uh, to this text. So here I would suggest are the the basic elements, the crucial elements of um, uh, what needs to be a worship service. And in the the history of the church then, those basic dimensions of the fellowship of worship, that pattern of worship, uh, was given more structure. Now, I don't think uh, we would necessarily want to make the case that we are absolutely bound to any structure in the service. And yet, we would also say, uh, in the language of the confession, that Christian prudence would lead us to certain conclusions about structure in the service. Uh, Christian prudence would lead us to conclude that the benediction is probably better at the end than in the middle. If you had the benediction in the middle, they might all leave. (laughs) I mean, the benediction is, in its very essence, a closing blessing. So you'd have it at the close. Is this too difficult? I mean, we'll keep it up here. Um, An opening prayer. 
in the logic of the thing, has, has a certain natural place uh, in, in the service. It should be near the beginning. You're not seeing this as a very profound uh, observation. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I would argue that there is a logical relationship uh, to the order of preaching and the administration of the Lord's Supper. That if the Word creates the sacrament, the Word ought to precede the sacrament. I don't think that's absolutely necessary. I think you could have enough Word before the, uh, the, the sacrament to, uh, to have the, uh, the, sermon, the, uh, the, the main sermon after the sacrament. But there is probably a kind of logic that says the Word precedes and that the sacrament uh, culminates the word. We'll come back to to look at that some more uh, as well. Um, So there are certain uh, matters of Christian prudence that would guide, I think, um, uh, the way in which we begin to order the service. And uh, John Calvin, um, who, as we all know, was nearly inspired, um, uh, had a rather simple, straightforward order of service that he would have said um, is in its elements derived from Scripture and in its pattern derived from the ancient church and from the synagogue. And it was very simple. Uh, It began with a call to worship, and he used an ancient call to worship, a call to worship testified to uh, in the Fathers. Again, not suggesting only one call to worship is permissible, but uh, he found that the Fathers often used a quotation from Psalm 124, verse 8, as the call to worship, and he used it. Uh, A rather familiar call to worship for some of us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Uh, Dutchmen think that's a Dutch call to worship, but in fact, uh, it's Calvin's, it's the ancient church, and uh, it's from the Psalter. Um, Calling the congregation to worship uh, led then to a confession of sins, a prayer of confession of sin followed by a prayer for pardon and the singing of a psalm, and then uh, a prayer for illumination, uh, the uh, reading of scripture, and a sermon. That was Calvin's uh, liturgy of the upper room, uh, uh, liturgy of the word. Uh, simple. Now, there were, there were other things uh, sometimes uh, uh, included. Sometimes there was a reading of the Ten Commandments. Actually, Calvin's liturgy changed some uh, through all the years he was in Geneva. Uh, there was also a use of the Creed, uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, so again, he had no absolutely fixed pattern, but, but you notice the simplicity of this pattern. Uh, we come into God's presence, we recognize our sinfulness, we confess our sin, we hear a word of pardon, we sing praise to God, we hear his word uh, read, and we hear his word preached. Um, a word-centered kind of uh, early service. The liturgy of the upper room, then, for Calvin, uh, was also rather simple. There was a, a collection for the poor, Uh, taken. Um, The expenses of the church were paid for by the state. Uh, Neither the buildings nor the minister's salary had to be um, uh, collected from the people. Doesn't sound all bad um, for the ministers either. Uh, But um, uh, the the collection then was for the poor. Then there were uh, the prayers of intercession. Interestingly, uh, Calvin uh, saw the prayers of intercession most appropriately offered after the sermon and before the Lord's Supper. Again, not a a rigorous requirement, not an absolute. Uh, He saw it as a more logical way of proceeding. Um, uh, Then often the the, uh, creed was recited at that point, the reading of the words of institution of the supper, instruction and exhortation about the supper, and then the communion, a prayer of thanksgiving, and the benediction. 
that was uh, Calvin's ideal shape of the liturgy. Uh, two foci, the preaching of the word and the administration of the, of the sacrament. Uh, but fundamentally a very simple service. Uh, very straightforward. A service of Bible reading and preaching, a service of prayer, a service of, celebra- uh, of fellowship in praise, and a service of communion. Sounds a lot like Acts 2.42, but then uh, Calvin knew that that was our book of Leviticus. Uh, he, uh, he very much uh, followed uh, that pattern. Another uh, principle that has often been mentioned among us as Reformed people um, is that our service, our meeting with God, is a dialogue between the congregation and God. And I think that's a very helpful uh, way of thinking about it. Um, in the recent uh, report on worship in the Christian Reformed uh, Church, they suggested maybe a better word than dialogue uh, was the word conversation. Uh, dialogue maybe sounds a little formal. Uh, conversation maybe a little informal. But anyway, uh, th- the notion is that there is a give and take. There is a back and forth. God speaks and we respond. And that too is a way of thinking about how the service should proceed. Uh, it should be an alternation to some extent of God speaking and we as the people of God uh, responding. And I think uh, the scripture itself points us in that direction in a, in a variety of ways. Um, Psalm 136 seems to be a dialogue uh, to some extent at least. Uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 22, uh, and I'm not suggesting this verse proves dialogue, I'm just saying it illustrates it. Uh, Jeremiah Uh, 3 verse 22 we read uh, 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 that the cry goes out return faithless people I will cure you of backsliding and then the verse goes on yes we will come to you for you are the Lord our God There there is a kind of dialogue the Lord speaks the people respond and that's a kind of pattern we find at many points uh, in the scripture and our our worship service ought to reflect that and um, uh, we, we elaborate that pattern, again, not in a legalistic way, but with Christian prudence. And so often we say, uh, God ought to have the first word. That's our call to worship from God's word. Um, and, and then perhaps we respond uh, to that uh, word of God. Uh, for Calvin, the response was a prayer of confession. In many churches, it's, a, it's a, um, uh, a song of adoration. We lift our voices. God's invited us to worship. That's a wonderful thing. We praise him. And uh, then perhaps uh, in, in some liturgies there's the word of God reminding us of our sin, perhaps the reading of the Ten Commandments. And then we respond in a prayer or a song of, uh, of penitence. And, and so it is, it is useful to keep that uh, dialogue, that back and forth in mind. Um, our prayers are our speaking to God. Our songs of praise are our speaking to God. The reading of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, the benediction are God speaking to us. And uh, when, when we keep that in mind, I think the service uh, has a sense to it that otherwise uh, we may miss. Sometimes people just look at an order of worship and they say, well, it's just one thing after another. What sense does this make? And the service ought to make sense. It ought to have some interior logic to it, some movement and development so that it, it reaches something of a culmination either in the sermon or in the supper, uh, in the benediction uh, pronounced uh, in God's name. So we, we need to have that sense, and that brings me back to the brief remark yesterday, um, 
that we need to know what's going on in the service as the people of God. We need to have a sense about what this dialogue is, what this movement of the service is, and how it's not just a hodgepodge of one thing after another in any old order, uh, but there is a movement to the service as we meet with God, as he speaks to us, and as we respond to him. Uh, Again, you could have, I suppose, the confession of sin at the end of the service. Um, By the end of the service, we have some new sins uh, added to our list, uh, sins of inattentiveness and hardness of heart that we could uh, appropriately respond to. And yet, liturgically, it probably makes more sense to have the confession near the beginning of the service so that as we come with a week of sin into the Lord's presence, we confess we are a sinful people needing to be uh, forgiven and renewed uh, by the Spirit. Um, so that uh, we need to know what's going on. And I guess that's part of my uh, reservation about the tendency to have a long period of singing in the middle of a service. Um, Again, I I wouldn't say that's absolutely wrong, but liturgically, uh, it almost seems to interrupt the conversation between us and God. We're doing all the talking. Uh, And it's appropriate that we should be talking to God, but we need also to be listening to God. And, um, And the older I get, the more I find 20 minutes of singing just exhausting. I, I can't do it anymore. Um, um, we'll leave that to the young. Anyway, um, so we need to be renewed in a real sense of not excitement, but perhaps enthusiasm and commitment about what's happening, why it's important, why it pleases God, why it manifests our meeting with God. Now, just briefly, uh, pattern in terms of the order of worship, I want to mention just uh, briefly uh, the the question of when do we worship? Uh, Because uh, this, too, has become uh, more than a little hot item uh, in the evangelical world uh, generally. Um, Fifty years ago, 60 years ago in America, uh, almost all evangelical Christians agreed that the Lord's Day was the day, Sunday was the day on which worship was to be offered to God. And the vast majority of evangelical Christians in America were what we would call Sabbatarians. They believed the Lord's Day was the Christian Sabbath. Uh, If you go and look at the uh, foundational document of the Southern Baptist Seminary in um, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, uh, that founding statement, a brief statement, has a paragraph on the Sabbath. The Southern Baptists were strict Sabbatarians. Um, uh, When I moved to to Philadelphia in 1974 to teach at Westminster there, um, uh, there was still a town in northern New Jersey on the coast that was a Methodist town. And on Saturday night at midnight, there was a chain uh, stretched across the road. You couldn't drive a car in and out of that town uh, on, on Sunday. The Methodists were Sabbatarians. Uh, the Congregationalists, historically, were Sabbatarians. We, we today sometimes feel like we have some weird, idiosyncratic, cultic reform notion of, of believing Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. That was the, the, the universal notion, in uh, almost universal. Lutherans never quite bought it. But um, my mother has a, a dear friend who was raised in a very pious Roman Catholic home. And uh, the, the, the Protestant Sabbatarianism even invaded... Uh, uh, American Roman Catholic homes. Uh, this friend of my mother's um, 
uh, said when she was a girl, her mother caught her knitting on the Sabbath. And her mother said, uh, you'll have to take out every one of those stitches with your nose in purgatory. (laughs) Now, I don't exactly embrace all of that sentiment, but... um, it, uh, it illustrates, you see, that, that the, the notion that Sunday was the holy day of the Lord was really quite pervasive in American culture. But that uh, idea is under major assault in our time. And it's not just being assaulted from outside the Reformed community, it's being assaulted from inside the Reformed community. Uh, the Reformed Ecumenical Synod back in the 1960s appointed a, uh, a committee to study the Sabbath question, and the committee was divided right in two. Um, uh, some uh, uh, defending the historic reform view of uh, Sunday as the Christian Sabbath and others rejecting it. And uh, that, that works itself out now um, on the American scene in, in very identifiable ways. In many strong evangelical churches, the Sunday evening service is dead and gone. Um, why is that? Well, I think two primary reasons. One is the loss of a Sabbatarian theology. And the other is, we'd rather be doing other things. A a creeping secularism, or maybe it's a galloping secularism. Uh, We want to watch sports on TV. We want to go out to restaurants with our friends. Um, And and I I believe very firmly that the the Sunday evening service cannot survive without a Sabbatarian theology. Uh, The Sabbatarian theology says we, we consecrate the day unto the Lord. It is the Lord's day not the Lord's hour in the morning. And that if we don't have that theology, it's very hard uh, to, to, uh, uh, to convince people uh, that uh, they ought to worship twice on the Lord's day. Um, I'm sometimes asked, well, what is the scriptural evidence for worshiping twice on the Lord's day? And uh, my response is, uh, I think you're right. I don't think the scripture does teach that we worship twice on the Lord's Day. And I think we as the people of God ought to rise up in righteous indignation and ask, why do we only get to worship twice on the Lord's Day? Why are we deprived of the means of grace? Why can't we worship three or four times on the Lord's Day? What's the matter with you ministers? Work a little harder. Let's have four sermons on Sunday. Uh, But but you you see, uh, I I say that as a joke, but... um, what does it say about the spirituality of a people? What does it say about their understanding of worship when they say, oh, thanks enough, once a week is plenty. Uh, I, I don't want to gather with God's people to, say his, to sing His praises more than once. I don't want to hear the word preached as a means of grace to, to water and nurture my soul. Uh, once is plenty. You, you see, we don't need to make this a legalistic thing. We don't have to say, you have to worship twice on Sunday. But, but we might raise the question, what does it say about your spirituality if, if your constant question in relation to Christ, Christianity is, what's the least I can get by with? Um, I, I had a, a marvelous visit with the moderator of the Free Church of Scotland who serves a church on the island of Lewis, the Inner Hebrides off the western coast of Scotland. And we got to talking about the communion season there and the season of preparation. They have communion twice a year. And in preparation for communion, they have two services on Wednesday, two services on Thursday, two services on Friday, two services on Saturday. At the end of the second service on Saturday, you get your communion token. 
You can't come to the table if you don't have a token to show you've been to the preparatory services. Then they have two services on the Lord's Day and then two services of Thanksgiving on Monday. So I asked the inevitable American question, how many preparatory services do they have to attend to get a token? <laughs> Pragmatic American question. I says, what, do they happen if, what happens if they only come to the second service on Saturday? Do they still get a token? It was absolutely amazing. He thought a minute, puzzled, and he said, Bob, why wouldn't they come? It had never entered his mind that people wouldn't come to the preparatory services. Why wouldn't they come? I mean, this is an opportunity. This is a blessing. This is a privilege. Why wouldn't you come? And, and that really needs to be the way we approach so much of this, uh, uh, these questions of worship. We have to ask what, what will really build us up in the faith, uh, not turn it into purely a legalistic debate. That's not ultimately profitable, I think. But if we, we think of it really spiritually, it'll be much more profitable. But uh, churches abandoning Sunday night service, churches increasingly having Saturday night services. Um, I'm sure you've uh, heard about churches like that. And um, uh, I have no objection at all to a nice Saturday night evangelistic service. That's, that's fine. Invite uh, the unbelievers and have an evangelistic service. But don't say it's the worship of the covenant community. The Lord, I believe, has given us a day. And we don't have time to get into a, a whole defense of the Christian Sabbath, but I would suggest that the place where such a defense needs to begin amongst us, since it is so under attack, is Revelation 1, verse 10, where John says in a very offhanded way, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, that's an important place, I think, to begin because the voices that we hear far and wide in the evangelical community say, Paul teaches that all days are alike in the New Covenant. He teaches that in Romans. He teaches that in Galatians. All days are alike in the New Covenant. And if you just appeal to Old Testament texts, you see, to try to answer that argument, they're going to say, that's an Old Testament text. We're talking about the New Testament. We're talking about the New Covenant. But John says, and I believe John and Paul don't contradict each other, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That means there is a Lord's Day in the New Covenant. It means not all days are alike in the New Covenant. And it forces us to ask the question, all right, what is the Lord's Day? Well, I think it's not the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. That's why I think, uh, as I said yesterday, Colossians 2 is so important. The seventh day is fulfilled in Christ. What other day could it be? Is it the eschatological day of the Lord? That doesn't seem to make any sense because John isn't saying I was in the Spirit on the eschatological day of the Lord at the end of time. Um, is it Easter? A few commentators have tried to argue that it's Easter, an annual celebration, but I don't think there's a hint in the New Testament about an annual celebration of Easter. So what's left? What's the Lord's Day? It's the day of His resurrection. It's the day of His weekly appearing. It's the day that is focused on in the Gospel and, and, and Acts and in 1 Corinthians as the day of Christian gathering and worship. The ancient church did indeed have a sense. The apostolic church had a realization that Sunday was the Lord's Day. It was the day that belonged to the Lord. It was the day of the Lord's resurrection. 
Now, as you probably know, that, that uh, word lords there in Greek is actually an adjective in Greek. To translate it very literally, you might say the dominical day. Um, and that adjective is used only one other place in the New Testament. That is in 1 Corinthians 11, where it talks about the Lord's Supper. And I think that's very important to see that parallel. As there are many suppers... So there is one supper that belongs in a unique and special way to the Lord. And as there are many days, there's one day that belongs in a unique and very special way to the Lord. And uh, as I read that report um, of the uh, Reformed Ecumenical Synod from back in the 60s and tried to weigh the arguments for and against the Sabbath as presented there, I found the most convincing argument uh, from the Sabbatarian side the argument that the Sabbath is not a mosaic institution, it's a creation institution. It's what God intended from the beginning, and therefore it informs our understanding of what the Lord's Day must be. It is the day in the New Covenant that the Lord has blessed, that the Lord has given to pattern our lives. And I believe very strongly that the decline of evangelical Christianity, but more particularly of Reformed Christianity, can be linked to the decline of the Sabbath amongst us. The Sabbath ordered our days, ordered our lives, and gave us time for God. Gave us time for holy reading and holy reflection and holy fellowship. And with the loss of the Sabbath, we have lost so much of that. And... Um, uh, it, it seems to me that one of the, the factors in the problems that the Christian Reformed Church is facing is that so many lay people today uh, don't read. Don't read edifying things. And to be sure, it may have been in the old days that there was a, a, a somewhat legalistic approach to the Sabbath. But when I was in high school in the Christian Reformed Church, and when I asked an elder, what can you do on Sunday afternoon? His answer was, you could read the Bible or the Catechism. Now, that may be excessively restrictive, uh, but people who were doing that were nurturing their souls in reading good things. They were being built up. Uh, they were having their knowledge of Christian truth increased. And uh, today, too often, we don't really have time for God. And, and it's ironic, you see, that these people who uh, are driving the evangelical uh, movement in our country and are so uh, opposed to formalism, you see, begin to see the very forms that God has given us as being a problem rather than a solution. And I think we as Reformed people have to say, no, the forms God has given us will not ensure warmed hearts and spirituality, but they are not the problem. They're part of the solution. The answer to uh, coldness is not to junk the Sabbath, but to reinvigorate the Sabbath for us as a spiritual reality. These same people tend to junk the sacraments. That's just a form. But the answer is not to junk the form of the sacraments that God has given us, but to reinvigorate them. Uh, we need to, to know what God's forms are because they're the forms He will bless. They're the forms that He has given and established. Uh, well... I promised to try to leave time for questions, and instead I'm going on and on. Uh, let, let me just close quickly with something uh, a little more controversial. Um, 
I hate to be so predictable and, and uh, say things you'll all agree with. Uh, one question that rises amongst us as Reformed people is, what, is, what does all this say about the church year? <clears throat> the church year has made a huge comeback in some Reformed circles. That is, um, uh, Advent and Lent and, and all of these seasons uh, of the year. And um, uh, let me just say briefly, it seems to me that the regulative principle really does not encourage uh, this sort of stuff at all because it isn't biblical stuff. Uh, it's, it's fine to remember the birth of our Lord. That's biblical. Uh, it's, it's important, necessary, to remember the resurrection of our Lord. That's biblical. But to establish a whole series of holy days outside of the pattern of, of Sabbath is really, in the long run, detrimental, I think, to the well-being uh, of the Christian community. And when these holy days established by the church become more important, become the high holy days, overshadowing the Sabbath, we are really losing um, the pattern that God has given us. He's given us a pattern not only of how we worship, but a pattern of the order of worship, uh, in which one day in seven is his and to be given uh, to his worship. Well, if you have more questions about church year issues, uh, if I ever give you time to ask them, I'll let you, but we need to, to stop there and take a break. Thank you very much.